morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Dion. Uh, if I fall down, I'm weak in the knees from that last song. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to take a risk here and say that song gives me the goosies. I don't want to sound like J-Lo from American Idol, but uh, so that was a little bit of a risk. I don't know if anybody watches American Idol, but one of the cool things that happened in the finale, if you watch it, the runner-up, Clark Beckham, they get to invite somebody who was an important influence in their musical career. He brought his pastor, and it was in the audience, and his pastor was given the keys to a brand-new Ford, and it was pretty cool. Uh, anyway, I just want to welcome you all here. Thank you for being here. We've got a special message in a bit. Uh, a little bit of background, though. Um, you may know me here in, in association with the Ministry to Men. I've uh, been involved with that for a few years, but more recently, some of you also know that I've been connected with an organization called Man in the Mirror. Uh, Man in the Mirror is a national ministry. What we do is we work with churches to help them create an environment where men are inspired by the Holy Spirit to engage in life-on-life -life discipleship. We walk alongside pastors and men's leaders, helping them understand how to go about this in a way that's going to be sustainable and more effective so more men in these churches are becoming true disciples of Jesus Christ. So this weekend, we had a uh, conference right here in Waterville where we had pastors and men's leaders representing nine churches, mostly from Maine, but we actually had one uh, church representative from Atlanta, Georgia, which is kind of interesting. Um, one of the things I really enjoy and I appreciate about this church's support of this ministry for me, uh, the overwhelming support of this church has been very humbling, not only as a corporate body, but individuals in the church as well. So I really appreciate and, and get a lot of joy from the opportunity to share some of the ministry with you all. Uh, about 80 guys here participated in a Success That Matters seminar in January here. You get to meet Brett Klemmer, who's the vice president of Man in the Mirror. That seminar launched the journey to biblical manhood. We're, ju we're just now in the process of completing the first challenge of that. Uh, some of you also had the chance to meet Patrick Morley, the founder and uh, chairman of Man in the Mirror. He was here in March to help me present a pastor's breakfast where we introduced Man in the Mirror to a number of pastors from around the state. That was down in Topsom. But Pat was here the night before, and we had a little dessert social, and a number of you had a chance to meet him personally. He autographed some of his books for some folks. That was a, a real blessing. So I'm, I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to introduce you again to another uh, member and a real uh, pillar of Man in the Mirror. He's been with Man in the Mirror for 21 years. Uh, he is the president of Man in the Mirror. He was here to present the um, No Man Left Behind training here yesterday. And I'd like to ask you to help me welcome David Delk. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning. I uh, Actually, this is a return trip. I was here... I don't know, six or eight years ago for a men's conference, but I, I wasn't able to worship with you that weekend. So uh, this is a real treat to get to be here on a Sunday morning. I'm so thankful for your ministry, uh, the, the influence that you all have in this area, in this community, in, in people's lives, the support that you've given to Jeff, the support that you've given to the ministry with men, not only in this place, but, uh, but throughout this, uh, this part of the country. We're really grateful for that, and I'm grateful to be able to be with you this morning. And that touches a real personal uh, 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 place with me. I want to share just a little bit of my story with you so that you'll see um, why that is such an encouragement. Uh, I've got a couple of pictures here I'm going to show you and uh, start out with a picture. That's a picture of my grandfather. And uh, my grandfather lived in rural South Carolina uh, between the World War I and World War II is kind of when he became an adult. 
And uh, at that time in rural parts of the country, you had to kind of do everything. So he was a jack of all trades. He um, was a farmer, a tailor, a mechanic. He grew timber. Um, he was a very funny guy. Everybody loved my grandfather when he was sober. And the problem is that when my dad was growing up, he wasn't sober very much. And so my dad literally never knew what was going to happen next at home. They lived, as I said, in this rural area. Uh, just one story. Um, my dad was coming home on the school bus from elementary school. They didn't have running water in the home at the time. So uh, my dad pulls up. They pull up on the school bus. My dad gets ready to get off. He hears some snickering. He looks out, and his father is drunk in the front yard, naked in a puddle, taking a sponge bath. And you can imagine as an elementary school child having to get off the school bus, you know, and see this. Um, they didn't go to church because the church was right up the hill. And my grandmother was always afraid of what he would do when he got drunk on a Sunday morning if she wasn't home and he had to come looking for her. And she couldn't bear the thought of the scene that he would make if he came up to the church building when she was there. So they just didn't go to church. But my dad had an aunt uh, who loved him. And as a young man, she began to come by and pick him up and take him to church. And Jesus Christ transformed my dad's heart. So this is a picture of my father at about the same age as that picture of his father. And uh, so my experience was completely different than my dad's. I grew up in a home where I saw a man, um, you know, learning to love God, learning to read the scriptures, involved in church, working hard, spending time with us as kids, loving his wife. I mean, all those things that you'd want in a father. And not only did it impact me, but it goes on. I had two brothers, and and between us, well, here's an example with uh, me in the front of the boat and my dad in the back of the boat, and that's my oldest son in the middle. Uh, So it goes on to that next generation. Between me and my brothers, two brothers, we have nine children altogether. They're nine grandchildren. So this is a picture of the 17 of us getting ready to return from our second family mission trip to Costa Rica. So think about that. In three generations, you go from a guy who's using his addictions to stiff-arm God to 17 people on a family mission trip to Costa Rica. How does that happen? It happens because Jesus Christ transforms the heart of one man. One man. And I firmly believe, I can almost assure you, that there are, are young people in this church today, maybe even sitting here, that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, are going to be giving the testimony that my life was completely different because a church reached out to my dad with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life was transformed and that made all the difference for me. So I'm so grateful for your ministry. I'm grateful to be able to be here with you today and I'm grateful to bring a a message from the word of God and we're going to kind of launch from the text Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. And uh, it's going to be a sort of a wide-ranging message, a little bit of a different message, but uh, we're going to launch out from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And this does kind of summarize um, our message today. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
may God add understanding to the reading of his holy word. So, uh, you know, it's interesting when you think about uh, people um, and some of the things that people are passionate about. Uh, I live in, in the south, even though Florida is not really a southern state uh, in that sense. It's still uh, southern in this reality, and that is the all-present worship of college football. It is crazy. And I know, you know, you've got things that you got guys that worship hunting or love hunting. You've got guys with hockey or pro football or whatever. But college football is the thing in the South. And it's interesting when people talk about their teams. How, you know, have you ever heard this? How do people talk about their teams? You know, we're going to have a really good season this year. Oh, we're looking strong. You know, really? I, I didn't see you out there at 6 a.m. lifting weights and running. I didn't know you were on the team, you know. But why do we think about it that way, and why do we talk that way? Well, I think there's this innate sense in us that we want to belong to something, that we want to be a part of something, that we want to feel like we're connected to something that's big and important and exciting and valuable. And so when I think about that and I see how different people experience that, it makes me wonder, okay, well, where does that come from? And when we see this passage here, uh, Jesus talks about this idea of the kingdom of God. And that, of course, leads us to think about the contrast to that, which takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden in the beginning. And we know that through the fall that the world was plunged into this kingdom of darkness, or the scripture also calls it the kingdom of this world. And so things were broken. Our fellowship with God was broken. Our fellowship with one another is broken. What's the very next story that you get after the story of, of the sin of Adam and Eve? Does anybody remember? It's Cain and Abel, right? So you have violence among brothers. You have this, this, this closest relationship, brothers, that should be so sacred. And what happens? You have murder committed in it. Why? Because sin has entered the world. The world is broken. The world is not the way that it was meant to be. And so this is the reality that we see in the Old Testament. And yet throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise that a new day is coming, that something better than this is going to happen, that a Messiah is going to come, an anointed one. And that ultimately comes to fruition in this ministry of Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways that Jesus talks about what he did is with this idea of the kingdom of God. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 118 times in the Gospels, the kingdom is mentioned, 118 times. So it's obviously a very important concept to Jesus. But, you know, it's kind of hard for us to, I don't know, to connect with the idea of kingdom. We don't, we don't have kings in this country, you know, and, and even the kings that we know about, like in Europe and stuff, they don't, they're not really kings in the sense of ruling. They're sort of more like celebrities or something. Um, and so, uh, you know, what exactly did Jesus mean by this kingdom? Well, if you look at this uh, passage, it gives us a, a hint here because it says that he did two things in Matthew chapter 4. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and he healed the people of their diseases. Now, how are those two things linked? Well, let's take a look at see some of the things that Jesus did when he was here and some of the, the healings that he did. Uh, for example, feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Okay, you remember the story? The people are there. They're hungry. Jesus tells his disciples, why don't we feed these people? The disciples look at him like, okay, Jesus got a little heat stroke here. You know, how in the world are we going to feed 5,000 people? You know, you can't do that. Now, think back to the curse of the fall. 
Does anybody remember the curse that was placed upon man? God said to man, yeah, by work and toil, you're going to have to fight with the ground. There's going to be the sweat of your brow. There's going to be thorns and weeds that you're going to grow food, right? This was the curse that was given to man. And so when Jesus talks about feeding these 5,000 people, if he was going to live in the kingdom of this world, if he was going to live in the kingdom of darkness, he's going to have to go plant some fields and, you know, water them and weed them and harvest them and do all that stuff. But that's not what happens, is it? Jesus prays. He takes the few loaves. He takes the few fishes. He prays. And the food is multiplied and everybody is fed. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is demonstrating that he has the power to undo the curse of sin and the curse of the fall. That's what his miracle was showing. He is proclaiming the kingdom and he's demonstrating the power that he has to bring the kingdom into reality, into this world, to restore the world to the way it was meant to be. Think about um, healing the leper. You can read about that in Mark chapter 1. Uh, we know in the scriptures that healing uh, a, that a leper in the Old Testament was more than just a, a disease. They were actually sent outside the camp. They were separated from worship. They were separated from the spiritual life. They had to go through all these rituals and wait for all this time and, and do all these things. And so what does Jesus do for the leper? He heals him. Just like that. Just like that. And he doesn't tell them to wait seven days or go outside the city or anything else. He says, go to the priests and show them that you've been healed. I have the power, Jesus says, to undo what sin has done. And then ultimate curse of the fall was death, right? If you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And we know that death came in through sin, Paul says, through the sin of Adam and Eve. Death entered the world. And here, think about Lazarus. You know, here's Lazarus. He's been dead in the tomb three days. And what does Jesus do? He calls him forth. He raises him from the dead. And so Jesus has the power to undo the curse of sin and the fall. And that's what he's demonstrating through his, his uh, miracles. So what happened is, wherever Jesus went, it was like a little bubble of the kingdom of God entering into the kingdom of darkness. You can kind of see Jesus traipsing around it, and whenever anybody came in contact with him, they were coming in contact with the kingdom of God. So just remember some of the stories, right? Uh, the, the woman had been bleeding for years and years and years. She touches his robe, and what happens? The kingdom of God comes into this world, and she's healed, right? The centurion's daughter, you know? You could go on and on, all these illustrations of people that experienced the new reality, the restored reality, because of the power of Jesus Christ to transform their lives and to transform this world. And ultimately, of course, that scene, it's seen in what we sing about, I believe in the resurrection. When Jesus himself triumphed over sin and death and ushered in this new kingdom, ushered in this new reality. And so the promise that we have is that we now can live in that kingdom. And the scriptures make it very clear that this is our new home. The scriptures talk about the fact that this world is not our home, but instead we are part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so, for example, just a couple of scriptures here. Colossians chapter 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Revelation chapter 1. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. First Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that really references all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. Okay, this idea of kingdom, this idea of restoration, the longing for that goes all the way back to the earliest parts of the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 19, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So now notice it says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And so what had to happen? We could not obey his voice. We could not keep his covenant. The people of Israel couldn't obey his voice and keep his covenant. And so one had to come that could do that completely to bring in this new kingdom. And that, of course, is the incarnate son, Jesus. He's the one who obeyed his voice. He said, I I do only that which the father gives me to do. I speak only the words that my father tells me. So in perfect obedience, he brings in, because of his life and because of his death and because of his triumph over sin, he brings in this new reality. He is the turning point. He is the fulfillment of everything that they hoped for in the Old Testament. Now, here's the deal. That means it's a complete transformation. Think about how the scriptures talk about this. They talk about somebody who's blind becoming somebody who can see, right? Somebody who's dead becoming alive. They talk about being born again into this new life. And so and being a new creation, it's supposed to be a total transformation. And so the reality is, if we are living like we are still in the kingdom of darkness, then we're missing something. You know, I go uh, around the country and I work with churches at different places and I have a it's a great joy to meet a lot of different people. uh, And I see a lot of Christians are living with power and joy, a radical kind of surrendered life, obedience But you know what? I I see a lot of discouraged. I see a lot of Christians that are kind of going through the motions because they sort of want to add Jesus to their life to, you know, clean themselves up a little bit. I need some morality. I need to have a better marriage. I'm hoping my kids will be okay. And so I'm going to tuck Jesus onto this part of my life right over here, and he'll kind of take care of me and help me be a good person. That's not the gospel. (laughs) That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are transformed from the inside out, that we surrender, that we abandon ourselves to the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, and that he works in and through us to make us into something completely new. And so if you're carrying baggage today from the old kingdom, it's not going to fit into the new kingdom of God. You know, I've met some Christians that are very bitter, that are very frustrated that are unforgiving. And if that's, in your, if that's in you today, if you have bitterness in you, if you have unforgiveness in you, um, by the way, uh, one person said, you know, being bitter towards people or being unforgiving towards somebody is like waking up every morning drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Okay? So, you know, that's just uh, something to consider. But, you know, that is not what Jesus says is we need to lay those things down because that's not part of who we are anymore, the anger, the desire to control other people. The uh, need for approval, the need to have a great reputa- uh, reputation, the need to be a success, the need to have a great career, to have a perfect family, to have a, a perfect marriage, all these things that people are looking to for satisfaction and completeness, 
Uh, these things are just distractions from what Jesus said it was all about, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's life in the new kingdom. And so what Jesus describes for us is that it's kind of like the beachhead at Normandy. You know, uh, many people looking back at World War II, you know, say that while the war didn't end for a long time, the war was essentially over as soon as the Allies were able to establish a base on Normandy. As soon as they got a base on Normandy that they could resupply and bring in trucks and bring in manpower and all those things, the war was essentially over. And so what we see is when Jesus came, he inaugurates this kingdom, but it's not going to come, become a reality until the new heavens and the new earth. And so we are living in this weird time uh, that the scriptures talk about as the now and the not yet. And frankly, this is frustrating. Okay? I read these passages. I don't know about you, but I read some of these passages, and I don't know what to do with them. For example, in Ephesians, you know, Paul says, uh, your life is hidden with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, in Colossians chapter 3, he says this, verse uh, 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is who, is who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I, I, I don't know what to do with that sometimes. I don't feel that way. I feel like there's an awful lot of David still alive a lot of times. I mean, I'm thinking about three weeks ago. I've been married 27 years here coming up in a few weeks. And I'm thinking three weeks ago, my wife and I were discussing something. And, uh, and I'm literally sitting there thinking, I cannot understand how you can possibly see this from that perspective. Now, some of you have been there, right, with your spouse? Some of you have been there, you're, if you're honest, you know. And I'm thinking, 27 years, and what is wrong with me? What is wrong with her? What is wrong with somebody? somebody something's wrong with somebody in this deal, you know. And, and, and you're, why, how does it work this way? I still get angry. I still get frustrated with kids. I still, you know, I get uh, upset about things that don't go my way. You know, I don't like it when I'm disrespected. I mean, all this stuff. What, I, I, Paul, you said I'm supposed to have died and my life is supposed to be hidden with Christ. I don't feel like that. You know, I'm still selfish. I still have all these things. I'm still controlling. So funny. The other day I was riding with my uh, my wife and uh, my son who's home from college. We have an empty nest now. So we're this year. So we uh, we have our son home for the summer. So pray for us. But anyway, um, yeah, you know how that is. But uh, anyway, we were driving to uh, to another city. And we were going to meet some folks. And so I'm driving along and, and I'm driving the car. Well, I, you know. Normally, I would want to figure out what we were going to do. I mean, you have Yelp, you got Google, you got all this stuff. I mean, why in the world would you just sit and waste the whole time in the car and not decide where you're going to eat, where you're going to meet the people, whatever? And my wife and my son are just like, la di da di da di da you know, whatever. We'll fall, we'll find somewhere we get there, you know. And I'm dying inside thinking that we need to find some place and make this decision and text them, you know, and all this stuff. I mean, how does that happen? Okay, it happens because we still live in this fallen world. We still live in this now and this not yet. And the scriptures recognize that in, a, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You see, John says, yes, I'm your partner in the tribulation, the suffering that we're going through, and the patient endurance that we're going through, and also in the glorious kingdom that we're going to have and that we're experiencing a part of now. And so there's this weird, incredible mixture 
of joy and pain that is just hard to make it through. My daughter's getting married uh, this summer, and uh, her fiance's name is Spencer, and Spencer's a great guy. We've known his family for many years, and um, they go to church with us. And so we have some property up in uh, South Carolina, back near this home place. And one of the things is a, uh, that's near there is a church with a graveyard. It's a little tiny church, and, um, and there's no congregation there anymore. But my dad set up a little foundation to maintain the, the graveyard and make sure the church has a roof on it and stuff like that. So three years ago, well, probably three and a half, four years ago, uh, we went up with Spencer's family. And one of the things we did was go over to the church. And so my dad unlocked it, and we were all in there. Well, Spencer and his dad, Forrest, uh, both played the piano. And so there was a piano that has been in this church for 80 years, 100 years. And um, so uh, Forrest sat down uh, at the piano, and he played Amazing Grace. The piano was so out of tune. I mean, it was terrible from that perspective. But it was so beautiful to hear Amazing Grace in that old church there. Well, uh, in a very sad and tragic turn, uh, shortly thereafter, Forrest was killed in a bike accident. It's been almost three years ago now. So my future son-in-law lost his dad right after he went to college. And uh, this Christmas, we were back at our home place in South Carolina, and we had some other people with us. And so we said, hey, let's go over and see the church. So we went over to the church building. We opened it up. We're sitting in there. And I remember this time. I remembered Forrest playing the piano. And Spencer gets up and goes to the piano. And I'm thinking... This is awesome. He's going to, you know, two and a half years later, he's going to get to sit down. He's going to get to play the song that his dad played. It'll be, you know, one of those moments of closure. It'll be so beautiful. And he sits down and he starts to play the first notes of Amazing Grace and the keys stick. We open the lid. We go up there. We pull the keys out. You know, he hits them again and they stick. And he can't play the song. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, you've got to be kidding me. Can't the guy get a break? I mean, you know, you have him here. You have him in the exact place his father was. You're giving him a chance to experience this memory. And the stupid piano keys won't even play. How can you do this to him? That's what I'm thinking. How can you do this to him? This doesn't make any sense. Right? And you know what? God didn't answer me. He didn't. And I know that some of you are going through some things right now where you feel like God's not answering you. And he may not. He doesn't promise us that in the now and the not yet that everything is going to get wrapped up in pretty little bows. You know, bad things happen. We suffer. We, people die of diseases. People are, you know, unjustly persecuted. I mean, all kinds of things happen. And so we have to decide, are we going to look at the circumstances that we're experiencing now? Or are we going to look to the hope of what Christ says is to come? And that is the fullness of his kingdom. And so this is what Jesus points us to. Basically, the big idea for this message is that Jesus wins and he gives us the chance to be in the battle with him. He gives us the chance to be in the battle with him. And so what we, when we experience this new kingdom, when we have that power of Christ, not self-effort, not trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be more patient or more kind or more loving. No, when we surrender and abandon ourselves in repentance every day, 
moving from self-reliance to God-reliance. And then we can demonstrate that kingdom life for others. What's happening is it's like we have a chance to bring that little bubble of the kingdom of God into the reality of other people's lives. So some of you have had to forgive somebody for something that people around you said, you're crazy. You should never forgive them for that. You should never forgive your husband for doing that. You should never forgive your wife for that. And when you forgave them, you were demonstrating a bubble of what the kingdom of God can look like. Some of you have shown incredible love and patience in difficult, difficult situations. That's the kingdom of God. Some of you have been in business situations where you didn't fight for every single dollar you could possibly extract from it, but you, you tried to get something fair, something equitable. That's the kingdom of God. Some of you have served and sacrificed for people who have less than you do. Some of you have reached out to people in your neighborhood who are hopeless and, and don't know where they're going to find meaning and joy and purpose. That's the kingdom of God. And so as individuals, we have a chance to be a bubble. To be a bubble of the kingdom of God as we live that surrendered, radical, transformed life. And as a church, we can be the kingdom of God. We can be a place where forgiveness is normal, where love reigns, where unity and harmony is the highest priority, where we want to serve and be a blessing to people who can't do anything for us in return. That's the kingdom of God. And I'm so thankful for this church and how you all represent that kingdom in this community. And so, you know, when, um, when I think about our new life, the reality is that the joy and the purpose and the meaning for us comes when we live out of this new reality. In other words, we were made for the kingdom of God, and when we live like we're in the kingdom of darkness, no wonder we're bitter, discouraged, you know, uh, depressed, you know, all those things, and we lack joy and, and, and purpose and life. But when we live out of this new reality of who we are in the kingdom of God, that's where the joy comes from. Uh, this is a picture of uh, my dog. And yes, it is a completely manipulative ploy to get you to see the cutest dog in the world. Okay, I'll admit it. Uh, this is my dog, Bowman. He's 80 pounds. He thinks he's 10 pounds. But, um, you know, it's, I live in the suburbs in Orlando, so there's not a lot of work to do outside. I mean, I cut my grass and, you know, cut my shrubs and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I play with him a lot. I throw tennis balls to him and race him around the yard and things like that. But uh, this winter, I needed to move a pile of, of uh, firewood. Believe it or not, we have a fireplace. We have about five fires a year. But anyway, I had a pile of uh, some extra firewood from a tree that got cut down, and I needed to move it. So he went outside with me while I was working on this. And at first, he thought I was going to play with him or something. But as I started moving this wood and stacking it, it was hysterical to watch the bowman. Because he had so much fun. He was grabbing pieces of wood in his mouth and carrying them around for, you know, a few feet and dragging them and, you know, just prancing around and doing all this stuff. While I worked for this, you know, 30, 45 minutes out there moving this wood. And he had a blast because he was with me when I was doing something. I think there's a lot of discouraged Christians because they're not ever really with God when he's doing anything. Yeah, they might come to a church service and... You know, they might go to a Bible study. They might write a check. But in terms of really seeing God do something transformational in someone's life, that where the kingdom of God is becoming a reality for somebody that's making a, a, a huge difference, they're not really there. 
And so my encouragement to you is, are you making it a priority? Do you have a vision of helping the kingdom of God become a reality in your, in your school, uh, in your class, on your team, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your family, with your friends? How can you demonstrate this new life that Christ has given us by loving well, by sacrificing, by forgiving, by serving in a way that really does make a difference for eternity? I brought a little illustration in today, and uh, this is some bubbles. And uh, so I'm going to actually see if we can make this work here and give you guys, oh, look at there, some bubbles for the front row here. Sorry, I can't get them all around. Somebody, hey, hey, go ahead and, uh, if one comes near you, go ahead and pop it for me, okay? Go ahead and pop it, all right? You want to pop one for me? Oh, let's get this over here. What happens when you pop?